0: Welcome to Revaluing Care in the Times of COVID-19, a podcast series that seeks to examine the power of care work in the context of the current pandemic. As we navigate this uncertain time of economic, social, political, and environmental turmoil, many feminists, activists, and scholars have declared these troubles as an interrelated crisis of care. Now is a time to reimagine how care fits into our society in a way that is more equal and just. This podcast is part of a broader network of 30 scholars from 16 countries called Revaluing Care and the Global Economy, an ongoing project funded by Bass Connections and the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies Department at Duke University. The Revaluing Care project is developed along three lines of research, metrics of care, governance, and social practices. This podcast series not only shares the core ideas of this project, but also seeks to identify what is at stake in these care issues of our time. My name is Amanda Kang. I'm a public policy major at Duke and a member of the Bass Connections team that is delving into these questions of care. In today's podcast, I will be moderating a discussion surrounding how the coronavirus has exacerbated existing flaws within the U.S. child care system. In my conversation with U.S. Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, Rian Evans-Albin, CEO of the National Association for the Education of Young Children, and Dr. Biza Batten-Lewis, President of the Black Child Development Institute of Atlanta, we address a number of key issues surrounding childcare. The panelists speak to the ways women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic in terms of employment and childcare responsibilities. They explain how important it is to invest in childcare and to re examine how we fund childcare services to better compensate providers. They emphasize the need for equity in the way we distribute funds to childcare providers to ensure that women of color, who do the majority of childcare work, receive fair pay and benefits. They also discuss a number of policy solutions including how to implement paid family and medical leave, which is currently unpaid, and the need to pay child care providers a fair rate through set contracts rather than per child or per day of care. Congresswoman Clark has represented the Fifth District of Massachusetts since December 2013, Her career in public service is driven by her commitment to helping children and families succeed. And she's a vocal advocate for ending wage discrimination, protecting women's healthcare, access to affordable high quality childcare, paid family leave and safer schools. In Congress, she brings her experience as a state senator, state representative, general counsel for the Massachusetts Office of Child Care Services and policy chief for the state attorney general. In fall of 2018, she was elected by her colleagues to serve as the vice chair of the Democratic Caucus, which makes her the sixth highest ranking Democrat in the Congress right now. She also serves as a member of the Steering and Policy Committee within the caucus, as well as a member of the U.S. House Committee on Appropriations, Congressional Progressive Caucus, and Women's Caucus.
1: Thank you, Amanda, for inviting me, and Professor Alcott. It is truly a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm honored to be on this panel with the other panelists. Just want to briefly say as words of introduction that this pandemic has magnified so many issues and fault lines that we knew were there, but has really brought them into focus for us, and child care is one of those. We know that this is an industry that is a key underpinning of our economy, and yet it has been underinvested in and undervalued and not treated as a public good. So I am hopeful that with this pandemic, we are going to uh, begin to treat this sector as essential infrastructure to our country and to our economy and our communities and to raising healthy, wonderful children. So um, we look forward to the discussion. And again, thank you for inviting me today.
0: Next, we have Ryan Evans-Alvin, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Association for the Education of Young Children, a professional membership organization that works to promote high quality early learning for all young children by connecting early childhood practice, policy and research. Reena is a trustee of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation and has served in a variety of roles as a founding partner of the Brecon Group, Senior Advancement Officer at the Arizona Community Foundation, a member of the First Things First State Board, and in various leadership positions with Libraries for the Future and Children's Action Alliance. Uh, She holds a bachelor's degree from Northern Arizona University and a master's degree in business administration from Arizona State University.
2: Uh, Amanda, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this discussion today and to echo what Congresswoman Clark said. It is startling to me that we're still having a debate about whether or not early childhood education is a public good or a private good. We now have 20 plus years of neuroscience. We have enormous amounts of data on the economic return on investment when you invest in early childhood education. And yet, we still seem to be doing a lot of hand-wringing as a country when so many other countries have doubled down on their investments in early childhood education. And we've got to get okay with creating value in care in addition to education. We're seeing that as public schools make decisions, even in the fall, about opening or closing, how intricately linked care and education are. And that certainly
0: is true for child care as well. So I'm excited to be part of this discussion today. And last but not least, we have Dr. Visa Batten-Lewis, who is a founder and CEO of Ideal Learning LLC, which is an education consulting and training firm. She's a best-selling author, an adjunct professor, a former college dean, and director of lab schools and Head Start. She currently serves as president of the Black Child Development Institute of Atlanta, Georgia's affiliate of the National Black Child Development Institute. She earned a Doctor of Education and Master of Education degrees in adult education at the University of Georgia and Master of Education and Bachelor of Science degrees in early childhood education at Albany State University
3: good afternoon everyone so so excited to be here i am so happy that we have come together to talk about children and childcare uh, one thing that has happened during this pandemic is that never before people realized how important care providers caregivers are I hate that COVID had to happen, but I am definitely excited that they see how important caregivers are and not just when they get to kindergarten or in public school or grade school, but long before that. So uh, thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for thinking of children of color because we know that families and children of color have been majorly affected by COVID-19 and we're definitely having a difficult time in the community serving children and families who need to work uh, during this time. So I look forward to our conversation today.
0: First question goes to Rian, which is How has COVID exacerbated or exposed some of the existing problems within our current childcare system?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, child care, the economics of child care were fragile before, uh, before COVID. We know that while the, ch- while childcare contributes to more than somewhere between 1% and 2% of the gross domestic product and serves in this dual role that is so important of keeping kids safe while their parents work and maximizing saying, the science of early learning. I think you know, making sure that we're thinking about what childcare contributes to the economy and therefore investing and, and what we've asked providers to do across the marketplace and, and childcare is a mixed delivery system and we value the fact that it's a mixed delivery system because parents have to have a lot of options in a lot of different circumstances. In all of those settings, the financing that we have created is one in which um, we are you know we're we're working on the margins and we're not really funding the cost of quality and so you 've got providers who they, there's not a lot of stability in what they can count on for the financing of childcare. When we pay for it based on how many days a week a child attends and not based on 12 month contracts, and we can talk about that more later And ways to fix the system, um, you, you have nothing predictable or nothing that a provider can count on related to what the, their revenue is. And so, um, and you've got the cost of care for families that in most states, Um, You know, infant toddler care costs as much or more than tuition at a public university. And this is at a time when families oftentimes are just starting out. They've not accumulated wealth. They've not accumulated assets. And so they're paying these exorbitant costs that are putting them into debt. And providers are, um, providers are scraping by because of the economics of early childhood education what COVID has told us is that we have got to fundamentally address the financing of the system. Parents can't pay more. Early childhood educators can't earn any less. And so that leaves the public sector as a payer, and it leaves employers as a
0: payer. And I think those are the two biggest opportunities we have moving forward. Going off of that, I wanted to talk more about how balancing work and family has been a major challenge for many parents in quarantine. Um, So what lessons do you think society has learned about childcare as a result from
1: working from home? Do you want to start, Representative Clark? Sure. And I, I think many of my comments will echo just what uh, Rianne just said, in that I do think that this has given us a, an opportunity to see how critical child care is and the critical role that child care providers play in a dual sense. They enable fantastic early learning. And also, it is this tremendous uh, support for our economy and for a workforce. And we know how genderized this can be. Recently heard from a Canadian economist who called this a she-session instead of a recession because of the tremendous impact of uh, the pandemic uh, and that women are losing the majority of jobs in a post-pandemic world. I want to also just sort of highlight that what we have seen through the programs that Congress has passed, uh, particularly the PPP program, which is run through the SBA, that so many of these small businesses that are, you know, over 95% of child care providers are women. of those women are women of color, and they very rarely have good uh, relationships with financial institutions, and were particularly not only hard hit by closings, over 60% of childcare providers had to close during the pandemic, but they didn't have the ability uh, to access the financial institutions, the SBA loans, and it really is so tied back to all the issues around gender, disparity in wages for women and racial injustice and how women who are running successful uh, businesses still don't have access to healthcare, and they don't have access to financial institutions and to the loans and the type of programs that they need. And this gets exacerbated as it does across our country, but particularly in childcare, in communities of color, in low income communities. So childcare is a great place to start to begin to do this work and make sure that we are not only recognizing that it is women that often need childcare, make those decisions and are contributing their salaries towards it in greater proportions, but it is also women providers who are struggling with low wages and an inability to access the kind of financial supports that they need.
0: So now that we've talked a little bit more about how COVID has highlighted some of these issues, I want to transition our discussion to talk more about potential policy solutions we want to go to moving forward. So I'm gonna call on Representative Clark again to talk about why the investment in childcare is so important.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Amanda. We are sort of taking a two-pronged approach. The first major bill is called Childcare Care is Essential, because it is, in so many different ways. And um, it is uh, a bill that I've done with uh, Congressman Bobby Scott and Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. And it is $50 billion with a B to really stabilize the childcare sector and make sure that we are able to get providers through this pandemic and able to reopen as the economy starts to reopen. And it is gonna be a much needed investment. And our second part of that, uh, which will be coming, is another $50 billion in looking at um, increasing grants to states through the childcare uh, Development Block Grant, which is the key way states get childcare funding from the federal government, and really getting at the issue of, of wages and making long overdue uh, investment in this critical sector. The other bill, which is a bill I filed last week, is called Childcare as Infrastructure. It is $10 billion to go just to that helping child care providers um, upgrade their, their centers or their family child care homes. We have heard a great need that would far outstrip, unfortunately, $10 billion, but it is a great down payment on whether it is making your child care accessible and putting in a modular wall so that you can meet some of the new licensing requirements that are coming. So, just when providers who already have a shoestring budgets in the best of times, we are now asking them to reopen after not having income for months, with reduced number of children and tuition, and taking on the costs of PPE and remodeling. So, this funding is is aimed directly at that. We're also put in a few other components. I just want to highlight. One is making sure that there's better technical assistance for providers in accessing not only this funding, but grants. And two other critical pieces are student loan program. So for every year that you remain in the childcare field, you would qualify for more of a benefit. I think that it will enable people to get the credentials that they need. And the final piece is around C Campus, which is providing childcare at our colleges. These programs existed, they've been cut dramatically, and we are working in this bill to restore that funding and expand it and make sure that our student parents have the support they need. Because frequently the classes are at times where traditional childcare centers are not available. So we need that kind of evening care for these students so that they can get the education they're looking for.
0: That's really amazing, given that the large proportion of child care is done by women of color. How can we assure that any
3: reforms to our child care policies also benefit these women? Great question. Uh, first of all, you know, we have to understand that. In the chakra profession, because, unfortunately, there is no structure where everyone has um, certain education, certain credentials, certain training, that people come in with different backgrounds and and levels of experience. So everyone does not understand the business aspect of uh, operating. So there's a lot of money left on, on the table, first of all, because we don't understand how to operate business at the maximum level. You don't always understand how to charge. But some people don't understand, even when they're getting funds from CAPS, They don't necessarily understand how to have their fee structure centered around that. So equity is an issue in terms of how to set up funding and fees, but also with the different laws that are in place, and even the funding that's available, one doesn't understand how to complete those applications. And even when they do complete the applications, uh, in the Black community, I can tell you, a lot of funding does not come. When we do our research to try to find out who's getting funding, we're finding those small businesses that aren't necessarily getting that money or they're getting the loan. If you look at the details of what they're asking for, for you to sign on for this loan, I mean, they're almost asking for a piece of your company. So when it comes to any type of law, any type of application, any type of funding, we need to make sure there's support behind the scenes to help people to apply. It's important that every state has some type of professional development, development in place for everyone who does not understand.
2: I would just briefly add, we know a couple of things related to how disproportionately women of color are impacted. And it goes back to the systems issues that we're dealing with. And so in early learning, we say this is what it costs. This is what it would cost so that women could have retirement. This is what it would cost so women could have livable wages. This is what it would cost so that women can pay, have health insurance. And it costs us $100,000. And the government says, great, we're going to pay you $10 to do it. And what do we say as a field? We say, okay, we'll figure it out. We'll do that. And so we have to stop doing that. There should be a cost of care that is what it costs if you're doing it well. And that needs to be the cost of care. I will say that A lot of governors have made great progress in the last few years with the enormous um, influx of funding through Congress. More than 40 states increase the rates that they pay providers, and it's still not the full cost of quality, but it is substantial progress the second piece is that this idea of contracting for care. The way it works right now in most states is that that money follows each individual child. And so you've got this patchwork quilt where providers can't count on a base amount of money in a contract. They could say, okay, We have accountability here. We're being contracted for 15 children for a year. We know what our part is. We've got a budget we can count on and therefore we can increase compensation. Therefore we can pay our employees benefits. Therefore we can build retirement into the cost of care. And so the basic way we finance care continues to disadvantage women of color and the the whole field, quite frankly.
0: So I'm going to skip to another type of policy that's more heavily considered now, given everything that's going on. And I wanted to pose this question to Dr. Biza, and that's the issue of paid family and medical leave. So, what would you say is the best way to implement this policy, and how
3: would we pay for that policy? First of all, we are thankful that we have the Families First, the Coronavirus Act, which a lot of um, the programs are using to coordinate and pay for some of the leave, and so. If all providers, first of all, they need to make sure they have a relationship with their local Department of Labor. We're hearing also that providers who are connected to a payroll company, the payroll company is helping them to set it up in the system for them and they haven't had any issues with it at all. One of the issues is that some of the staff think that they can get more money than they were making. So, you know, the leave is going to be equivalent to what you were already making and how much you were already working. So if you work working 20 hours a week, you're not going to get paid 40 hours. And so that's important for them to understand because that's been a major misunderstanding. When it comes to implementing leave, money is the big issue. So how do you afford it, right? especially when, you have, when you're closed. And that goes back to what Representative Clark was talking about earlier about the CARES Act. So if you are a sole proprietor, you can get the PPP, but if you're an LLC, you can't get that, you gotta go and get the EIDL. So based on how your business is set up, you have to see what you qualify for in terms of support for when it comes to funding. And then once they see how they can get more funding, then they can set it up in terms of payroll. And so finally I'll say that in terms of how you're making your money it's a great time to figure out how you should structure your your fund, your money. It's a great time to figure out what you can apply for to get more funding in. It's a great time to connect with professional organizations in in, in your area and nationally, because all of us have resources on that. If you go to um, our website, uh, bcdiatlanta.org, on each of our programs pages, if you click on each of our focus areas under programs, at the bottom of each page, we have a resources list that provides all kinds of information to support you. Perfect, thank you. So I'm gonna ask our final
0: question. I know that many of our listeners are really deeply engaged with this issue, and I'm sure they want to hear more about what they can do as activists to sort of support these policy changes that we've talked about. What's one takeaway that you really want to leave with our listeners? What do you want each of our listeners to really go out and do?
2: I would say if you haven't registered to vote, register to vote. If you're not signed up to get alerts like from NACI or I think NBCDI does alerts as well too, sign up for our action alerts because Representative Clark and her colleagues are doing an extraordinary job leading the charge to get financing for early learning for child care but they need support and their colleagues need to know that the country is supporting them and so you've got to be involved and be emailing and calling your congressional offices and pay attention at the state level too because the federal government has the primary responsibility for getting money to the states but governors have a ton of flexibility in how they implement it and so your advocacy at the state level and in some states Childcare is administered through counties. And so even at the county level as well is really important.
1: I am going to follow and echo vote, vote, vote. And when you go to whatever forum you're on, ask your candidates in your area, where do they stand on this issue? What are they willing to support? Do they see the connections between pay equity and racial justice and child care? and make sure that you're talking about it in those terms. This is very much a feminist issue. This is very much about the future of our country. And it can be an area where we have some great proposals, uh, but we know that the House can only pass them through the House. And we need to make sure that in your states, uh, you are contacting your senators and that they understand how crucial this issue is. So we're at this moment, I believe our country, if we are bold, if we vote accordingly, we can make a difference in how women are paid and how their work is respected. But we're only gonna do it if we follow through and it's not gonna be one piece of legislation. It is both a sprint and a marathon. So I'm very grateful for, for everyone on this call, and especially to my fellow panelists for, for their work. But it's going to take all of us to do this and to prioritize childcare, and to really understand how essential it is to our communities, our children, our future, and our economy.
3: Great. So I definitely echo the voting census as well in uh, our work um, in the Black community, you guys. I, I know now, now if more than ever, more people are, are becoming informed, but uh, in the Black community, you know, people, anything that seems systemic, no one wants to be, ha, have any part of it. No one wants people, a lot of people, we're trying to get folks to vote. People don't believe in uh, that voting works, so they're not doing it. You know, uh, the voter suppression is real. If you heard the heartbreaking stories that I hear every day, you would just just cry. And you know, when someone tries to go vote at different ages and, you know, for whatever reason, the, the list was purged and they didn't know it. Or for, they give these idiotic reasons why they're unable to go vote. So people just stop doing it the census they think that you know you're going to deport them or you think they think you're going I to and there are all you. kinds of people working in our profession there are all kinds of children being served and families by our profession and so the cookie cutter one size fits all is never going to work And all of our platforms and all of our work we must stop promoting that and we must really buy in and promote equity we talk about it but we're not really implementing equity There's a lot of funding that's going around, but when the funding is received, it's not going to the children, the families that were written into that, to get that funding. And so we must make sure that we are funding and using money to where the needs are. So cookie cutter, one size fits all, no, no, no. Let's really look at equity and make sure that those different pieces of pie go where the needs are Wherever you can push for equity and or equality, uh, please be an ally and support that because you may not ever be able to live and understand that what is going on and has gone on and why people feel the way they do, but realize that it's a true emotion, that these are things they are really experiencing and figure out, hmm, how can I be a support for those needs?
0: That was really wonderfully said. I wanna say thank you again to our speakers uh, for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedules to speak with us today. I know um, I speak on behalf of all the audience when I say that we've learned so much from all your insights. Thank you so much for tuning in to our first podcast in the Revaluing Care in the Times of COVID-19 series. Our next podcast will explore the phenomenon of mutual aid in the pandemic era and brings a panel of speakers from Italy, China, and Argentina to discuss the benefits and risks of the system.